Let's hear God's word as we turn in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, the end of chapter 2, just to uh, get the flow of what's taking place here. Moses has taken refuge in Midian and has married one of the daughters of, of Ruel, of Jethro, the priest there. Verse 23 of Exodus 2, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals from the place, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That changed my life. Have you ever had occasion to say that? Have you ever found yourself saying, Some event or meeting someone, some experience, that changed my life. There ever been something that has had such a profound effect on you, for good or ill, that you have never been exactly the same again? That changed my life. Interesting, in recent years, now when we hear sometimes of an accident or some uh, tragedy, you will hear the report uh, that it caused life changing injuries. Never used to use that term in the past, but that's common now life changing. And of course, the life changing can be good. It can be some wonderful experience that touches, transforms us, an encounter that maybe leaves us thinking differently about ourselves, about life, about others. The change can be of various kinds. And that certainly was the case for Moses in uh, the episode we have recorded in Exodus chapter 3. You may not 
have said it in so many words, but it would have been true for Moses. That changed his life. He never would be the same again. So we're turning to Exodus 3 and verses 1 to 10 this evening. Meeting the living God. Meeting the living God. And there in Psalm 115 we were reminding ourselves of the contrast between the living God and all the idols, the idols of Egypt, the idols of the nations. Here's Moses meeting the living God. Several things about this God that we see in this passage. First of all is the God who appears. The God who appears. Slowly God is unfolding his plan. We've already noted several times that God's not in a hurry. God takes his time. Acts 7 verse 30, Stephen's speech and his summary of the history of Israel after 40 years had passed. So remember, 40 years growing up in Egypt, he has to flee when he's killed the Egyptian. 40 more years in Midian. Moses is 80 at this stage, the beginning of Exodus 3. Now, even in terms of lifespans at that time, he is old. 80 years old. 40 years God has kept him in Midian. He's a shepherd working there for his father-in-law. Doing work that was despised by the Egyptians. You remember uh, when the Israelites were going down into Egypt and Joseph said to them, now make sure they know your shepherds because they'll keep you separate the the Egyptians despise shepherds and people looking after herds and here's Moses prince of Egypt product of the best education Egypt could offer 40 years looking after sheep and he must often have thought the people back at home in the palace wouldn't give me the time of day now suddenly from a prince to a shepherd in Egyptian eyes not worth noticing at all. And God, of course, is working this all out for a purpose. Moses, the 40-year-old Moses, was brash. He was hasty. He killed the Egyptian without any warrant from God. And now here is the 80-year-old Moses. The brash self-confidence has gone. He's ready to shepherd. He's ready to shepherd Israel. He's had 40 years being humbled by God to do the work that's ahead of him. God's not in a rush, but he does his work precisely and well. Moses is nearly ready. The rest of chapter 3 will show us he still has some things to learn and come to terms with. Verse 1, we're told, he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Worth just for a second uh, remembering that Horeb was also Sinai. All All the echoes that Sinai will have in the history of Israel. Not yet. This will be the place where they receive the law, where they're established as a nation. Uh, But not yet. 
But for Moses, Horeb, Sinai, is going to be an important place for various reasons. And this is the first of them. Because this is where he will meet with the living God. And it's going to become a very important place in Israel's history. Notice God takes the initiative here. Moses has been learning that it's not his role to take the initiative. That's what he'd done back in Egypt. When, as Stephen tells us in Acts 7, Moses thought Israel would recognize that he was going to be their deliverer, and they didn't. Now he's understood after these 40 years in Midian that it's not for him to take the initiative. God will do it. It'll be in God's time that this work will take place. So God does take at the initiative. And in his time, the Lord acts. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Burning bush, of course, even historically become the symbol of Presbyterianism. The bush that burns and isn't consumed. I'm not saying Moses necessarily is a Presbyterian, but... He would have been if there had been Presbyterians around. And here at the burning bush, Moses meets with the living God. Here is a life-changing encounter. Now, burning bushes weren't unusual in the wilderness. Hot, dry climate, spontaneous combustion. But of course, the, the surprising thing here is that the bush is not consumed. It's burning. It's a flame, but it's not consumed. That didn't happen. And Moses, of course, is curious. His attention is engaged. He goes over. He wants to look at it, see what's going on here. Two things in particular to notice. First of all, the one who addresses him from the bush is the angel of the Lord. And we need to take a moment to understand who is speaking to Moses. The angel of the Lord is not just one of the created angels. There are multitudes of them, and they do whatever work God assigns them. But there's a figure in the Old Testament known as the angel of the Lord. At times, the angel of the Lord is spoken of as separate from God, and at other times, the angel of the Lord speaks and acts as God. You've got the two things that that seem to be contradictory. Is this God? Is it not? Sometimes he seems to be distinguished from God. Sometimes he acts as God. You have another example. When Abraham was up on the mountain with Isaac, was about to sacrifice him. And the angel of the Lord, we are told, spoke to Abraham. Don't kill him. And a verse or two later, this is in Genesis 22. A verse or two later, the angel of the Lord speaks as the Lord. In the first person. Not bringing a message as as a prophet might do, but speaks as the Lord. Not just a messenger. And it's clear here in Exodus 3 that this is an encounter with the Lord himself. It is God who's speaking to Moses. And Moses understands that. He realizes that it's God before whom he's standing. It's God who addresses him. How do we make sense of that? 
And the only way we can really do that, and the only way we can really understand the angel of the Lord is to think in Trinitarian terms. This is in the Old Testament, remember, before the Trinity was fully revealed in the New Testament. But here, we have to think in Trinitarian terms. And the angel of the Lord is God. Best regarded uh, as generally he has been by at least Reformed commentators as God the Son. Before his incarnation, before the Son came to earth, incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the Son of God addressing Moses. It's the second person of the Trinity. And it's always the Son who is the mediator and the channel of revelation. And God is why it is best to see it's the Son of God here addressing Moses from the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is the Son, is Christ before his incarnation, centuries later. But here he is. The angel of the Lord is God, one of the persons of the Trinity. And I think it is most apt and most in harmony with the rest of the Bible to say it is the Son who is speaking to Moses here. So it's the angel of the Lord. And then secondly, he appeared in flames of fire. Or you could translate it as he appeared as flames of fire. Either would be quite correct. What's the significance of this? Why flames? Why a burning bush? God could have appeared in all sorts of ways. Remember with Elijah. It was an earthquake. It was a fire But then it was the still small voice where God was. He could have chosen anything. Why a burning bush? Well, some suggest, older commentators have tended to suggest, well, the bush is Israel, and Israel's in the flames of uh, of oppression and suffering in Egypt, and God's going to deliver them. And you can make a case for that, and it's possible. But I think it's much more in harmony with the rest of what the Bible teaches to say that the flame of fire represents the presence of God himself. It's God who is made visible in the flames. You remember when Israel will be in the wilderness later on? They're led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And fire is often used in Scripture to indicate the presence of God. I think that is the best way to understand uh, this episode of the burning bush. God is the fire, and he will purify his people Israel. And he will not destroy them. He will deliver them. He'll bring them out from Egypt as his covenant people and bring them into their own land. As a holy God, he is like fire. But he does not consume his own people. But as fire, he's to be treated with reverence. We have to teach children to be careful with fire. And the Lord is a fire. He's to be treated with care, with reverence. Holy ground, that's why the ground is holy. That Moses is standing on. It's because God's there. It's not that the ground is magic or some sort of fairy tale stuff. God's there. The ground's holy. And God is to be treated 
with reverence. And rightly, Moses hid his face. Of course he did. He knows he's in the presence of God. Maybe raises a few questions about some things that pass for Christian worship today. Well, there seems sometimes very little reverence and very little regard for the holiness of God. And always we see in Scripture, when someone knows they're in the presence of God, Moses at the burning bush, John and Patmos in the book of Revelation, they're overwhelmed by it because he is a holy God and he's to be treated with reverence and respect. The God who appears, Son of God, addressing Moses, the God who will purify Israel and bring them into his land according to his plan, the Holy One. God who appears. Secondly, we have the God who speaks. The God who speaks. God speaks. I think, well, it's the Bible. There's nothing strange about that. But then we should bear in mind it has been over 400 years since the last direct revelation from God to his people. That was way back when Jacob was going down into Egypt. And he was anxious and he wasn't sure he was doing the right thing. And God appeared in some form to Jacob. Uh, This is in Genesis 46. And encouraged him. And so Jacob went down with a revelation from God. That's over 400 years before this passage. Silence. For 400 years. And that tells you this is a major occasion. God hasn't given a revelation for 400 plus years. Now it comes. This is big. This is important. This is a major development. And it's a reminder, of course, that our God is the God who communicates, He's not a silent God. At his initiative, he reveals himself. In particular, he reveals himself to his people. No other deity, idol, object of worship can do that. We sang about how they're helpless a short time ago. They can do nothing. But our God's the creator. Our God is the speaker. The God who reveals himself. A God who speaks, who uses language, words to convey truth, particularly, of course, to his people. And perhaps we tend to take it for granted. We're so familiar with coming to worship and opening a book, a book of words. And we forget it is amazing God should speak and use human words to address us and tell us about himself and tell us how to become his people. God speaks. Biblical religion is a religion of the word. That we're to use our minds to understand and engage with. Our Christian faith is not simply a kind of vague, mystical set of experiences. Not having words as God's revealed himself. Words that point us in the end to Christ. It is the religion of the word of a God who speaks. And look at what he says. Everything God 
speaks is significant, and this is no exception. I am the God of your father. He begins, verse 6. Why would he say that to Moses? I am the God of Amram was his father, the Levite be read about at the beginning of chapter 2. I'm the God of your father. Surely it's God reassuring Moses that he belongs to the people of God. This is Moses who was 40 years in Egypt growing up in the court. And Moses who was another 40 years in Midian. He hasn't set foot in the promised land. He hasn't seen Israelites for 40 years. Surely God's reassuring Moses, you haven't forfeited your place among my people. I'm the God of your father. You belong. You're part of my people. He may well have needed that reassurance. Perhaps after 40 years in Midian, he was thinking, well, has God anything for me to do? Has he forgotten me? What, what's going on here? I'm the God of your Father. Reassurance. And then the Lord goes on, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's the familiar pattern, isn't it? And there's the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I am the God. And worth taking a moment to remind ourselves of how the Lord Jesus used this passage when he was in debate with the Sadducees, people who denied resurrection and denied immortality. And in debate with the Sadducees in Matthew 22, Jesus refers to this passage and to these words of the Lord, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point that Jesus uses this verse to prove, Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. That's striking. Where Jesus is telling the Sadducees, and we can learn the same lesson from these words, God is the God of a living people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, They've been dead for years, but they're alive. They're alive with God. It's a, an important verse that reminds us he is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob still live with God by the Lord's grace. They're not annihilated. They're still alive. God's relationship with his people does not end at death. They are still with him. And we can add to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the saints of God who've gone on before us. He is their God. Not simply he was when they were on earth. He is now because they are with him. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Here again, here we are the earliest stages of the history of God's people, earliest part of the Bible, and there are words that remind us of the reality of eternal life and salvation. I am the God. And notice too, 
that the Lord here is speaking the language of covenant. Now we've had that theme in Genesis again and again. And we're going to find the same thing in Exodus because the one just carries on from the other. The language of covenant. You remember what the covenant is? It's God's relationship to his people like a marriage. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the heart of covenant. And this is the language of God's covenant with his people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's the line of covenant from generation to generation. And fundamental to the covenant is God's promise. He made it way back to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And the very heart of God's covenant is his relationship with his people. Fellowship. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. That's the heart of the covenant. That's the heart of biblical religion. Not performing certain ceremonies or using certain words. It's fellowship with God. That's what it's about. That's God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all his people throughout history. The covenant that's sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross. That's why there is a covenant. That's why we are God's people. That's why we are saved. It's because Jesus died and shed his blood for us. And that's why at the Last Supper, Mark 14, 24, he takes the cup the wine that symbolizes his blood. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. What does he mean? He means this is what it takes for there to be a covenant between God and people like us. This is what it takes for us to be saved. The blood of Messiah Jesus. And it's that blood that saved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the people of God, ourselves included. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our spiritual family. We're in the covenant of grace, all of us, because of what Jesus did when he died and rose again. God's speaking covenant language. The covenant we're in, if we're Christians tonight, now, the covenant with Abraham promised land. Do you know in the Old Testament how important the land was to Israel? You might sometimes uh, watch them and read about them, and I think they're almost obsessive about the land. It matters so much to them, the promised land. But it matters because it's part of God's promise to them. So Genesis 17 and verse 8 this time, that God promises the whole land of Canaan. I'll give it to you as an inheritance. The land is part of what God has promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his people. And God's going to fulfill that promise as he's going to fulfill all his promises. And that will entail delivering them from Egypt because they're not in the land, are they? 
They're down oppressed in Egypt, suffering, crying out to God. That's what we read at the end of chapter 2. They're getting desperate. Only God can deliver them. And he will. That's why he's calling Moses. He's going to keep his promise. He's going to bring them into, verse 8 here, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Of course, that's become proverbial, hasn't it? A land flowing with milk and honey. And that's how Canaan is described. And that is where God is going to take his people. And Moses is the man he's calling to lead them. This is what God does. God delivers his people. And he brings them, he brings us into a place of rich provision. That doesn't mean he will give each of us a a little bit of Israel. We'll have a bit of land in the Middle East. That's not what it means. Canaan is really a picture of God giving rich provision to his people. The provision you and I have in Christ. All we have is the fulfillment of the promise of the land. The land was a picture and a temporary picture of what we receive in Christ. Rich provision flowing with milk and honey. God's gracious gift to us in Christ. And so again, this is our spiritual history. Here are our spiritual ancestors. Here's the God who saves us. Here's the God who makes us his people. The God who appears. The God who speaks. And finally, the God who acts. The God who acts. We said when God remembers, he does something. God remembers Israel, we're told, at the end of chapter 2. He's going to do something. And this is what he's starting to do as he calls Moses to this amazing work. Verse 10, so now go, I am sending you. I wonder how Moses reacted when he heard that. He thought 40 years earlier that he was going to be the deliverer and he was about to do it. And he ended up 40 years in Midian. Now God says to him, 80 years old, I'm sending you to deliver my people. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites, my people, out of Egypt. Finally, the commission comes. God who acts in contrast to the idols we sang about in Psalm 115. And the crucial distinction, verse 3 of that psalm, our God does whatever pleases him. And here he's doing what pleases him. His time, not when Moses was 40, it's when Moses was 80. But he does what pleases him. Him. Suddenly, Moses at 80 receives the commission that he didn't have when he was 40. When he ran ahead, when he was hasty, when he made a mess of things. Now the Lord takes the initiative. 
Moses took the initiative, there was a mess. When God takes the initiative, he gets his work done. He sets down the task for Moses. I am sending you to bring my people out of Egypt. What a challenge. What a task God is giving him. At a time, we might say, when he was ready to retire. We didn't retire in those days, but he must have felt like it at that stage. God says, right, now is the life's work. Now's the real job that I've been preparing you for for 80 years. Now you're going to do it. Now it's my time. That's all going to happen. And Moses certainly could say it changed his life. And life will never be the same for Moses for the next 40 years that God gives him because he got another 40 years. Very neat Moses' career, 40 years in Egypt, 40 in Midian, 40 leading Israel. Nice and easy to remember. 40 more years of work that God will enable him to do. But now is the time. Not any earlier. Now he's ready. He'll wriggle, as we'll see, uh, as we go on in chapter 3. He'll try to get out of it. I can't do it. I'm not whatever. But God knows he's been prepared And with God's provision and God's help, he can do the work. He's called to willing obedience to the Lord's leading and the Lord's guiding. Now, we're not called to lead a nation, but we're still called to willing obedience to the Lord's leading and guiding in our lives, whatever stage we may be at. The Lord chooses the sphere of service in which he puts us. And it's our responsibility to submit to his will, to seek his enabling to do the work. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus Christ himself exemplified for us? Jesus' words, John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And as imitators of Christ, by God's grace, whatever stage we are at in life, that's what we are to be able to say. Our food is to do the will of him who sent us and to finish his work. We may not start our life's work at 80, but at whatever stage we are, Our delight and our desire is to do whatever work the Lord has for us, whether it's prominent or humble, whether many see what we do or only God sees what we do. We're to be faithful. Moses was faithful. Hebrews speaks that language. Moses was faithful in all the house of God. And by the same grace that Moses experiences, We are to be faithful in whatever calling God lays upon us. And his glory is our great ambition. The God who appears, the God who speaks, and the God who acts, meeting with the living God. 